0: Lord God, we ask that by your spirit you would illumine your text, your scripture to us, your scripture which is breathed out by you and is useful and is profitable for correcting us and teaching us, reproving us and training us in righteousness so that the person of God, the man or woman of God may be thoroughly complete, made whole, brought up to maturity and equipped for every good work. So Lord, not only form our minds, but shape our hearts by your word and shape our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time if you're able, because as we read the word of God, I just think it's good to revere and hold it in honor. So we're looking at Psalm 34 this morning, and let's turn our hearts and our attention to God's very word. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me; I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been looking at this summer a study of the book of Psalms and focusing on how to cultivate communion with God. In other words, how to grow in our walk with him, in dependence, in intimacy, How to actually cultivate that sense of a love relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our specific approach has been to look at the various genres of the psalms. Those psalms that can be categorized or read or grouped by their emotional tone. So you have hymns that are celebrations of praise. Life is going well and we are blessing or praising the Lord. We have another group of genre, another genre called laments. When the psalmist's life is in turmoil, and confusion, and distress, he can't make sense. His life is, in a sense, disoriented, and he's still processing before the Lord. He's crying out before the Lord. We have what can be called confidence psalms. Think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Can you hear the confidence in that? Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Thou hast loved us, love us still. That is confidence in the reality of the Lord's guidance and his leadership. You have remembrance psalms where we focus on remembering the goodness of the Lord, his past faithfulness. And this morning we want to look at Psalm 34, and Psalm 34 can be characterized as a thanksgiving psalm. And you might be sitting there going, I didn't see the word thanksgiving in that. It wasn't there, but that is still the genre of the psalm because here the psalm, and if you look at it, for example, verse 6, the psalmist refers to himself, he says, this poor man cried out and you heard me. Now, in a few minutes, we'll look at the situation behind this. But what the psalmist is doing here is he was in some sort of trouble. He was in need of deliverance. He was in need of rescue. And the Lord saved him. The Lord pulled him out of that trouble. The Lord rescued him. And what is he doing? He's giving thanks. He's grateful for that deliverance. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. That's why he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because now he's praising God, he is encouraged, and he's encouraging the community, his fellow worshipers, to join with him. So in the very opening verses of the Psalms, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble hear and be glad. And then he's crying out to his fellow fellow worshipers, oh magnify the Lord with me, I don't want to do it by myself. Let us exalt his name together. The genre, the tone of this psalm, the psalm's excited because the Lord has saved him from something. And he was encouraging his fellow worshipers, let's give thanks together. Let's exalt his name together. It's kind of like what C.S. Lewis said in his reflections on the psalms. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said when he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing that to fully enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? Because this is absolutely amazing. His claim here is that expressing, telling, vocalizing, sharing the praise is actually the completion or the consummation of the praise. That that praise is not complete until it is expressed. You know how natural this is to us? You go see a good movie, and what's the very first thing you do? You call your friends, you put on Facebook, you send out a tweet, you do Insta whatever it's called, you do whatever these things are, and you sit there and say, you've got to see this movie. You go to a restaurant and you tell your friends, you've got to try this new restaurant in town. Or your sports team wins, and the first thing you do is you have to share it. Why? Because it's inherent, it's built into us. almost reminds us that we're created, does it not? It's built into us that the expressing expressing of the praise is the completion of the praise. The psalmist is giving thanks for a great deliverance. And what does he say? He says, join with me. I can't do this by myself. Let's go together and exalt the Lord. Come magnify him with me. It makes it convicts me a little bit of, shouldn't we be rushing? We sing the praise song often, we will feast in the house of Zion. And I think to myself, how often do I come to the house of Zion more mopey rather than coming and saying, let's come to the house of the Lord where we're reminded, even in the depths of our affliction, we're reminded of his faithfulness. Even in the depths of our suffering, we're reminded of, we have brothers and sisters who love us and are afflicted with us. And are there to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Come, let us magnify him. Let us exalt his name together. We can't do it by ourselves. We must praise and we must cultivate gratitude together in community. How does this psalm teach us to cultivate gratitude? Basically by just highlighting two themes. Two themes that gratitude push us to. to. One is gratitude and humility. And the second one is gratitude and the fear of the Lord. Look with me at this text because humility is sprinkled throughout this psalm. For instance, verse 2, when David is exhorting his fellow worshipers to come in community, he says, let the humble hear and be glad. And then in verse 6, when he says, this poor man, it really means humble. This humble man cried. This humble man with no resources, nowhere to turn, bankrupt, bereft of any help. But I cried and the Lord heard me. And then what I think is just absolutely one of my favorite promises in the scripture, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What is the historical situation behind the writing of the psalm? Well, if you look at the title to it, remember I've reminded us these titles are not inspired, but they give us a little bit of a clue as to what's going on in the circumstances behind the writing of the psalm. So they give us a little bit of a clue of how to read it. This particular psalm says it was written by David, and it was written by David, it says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And if you're like me, you're kind of like, okay, let's look up who Abimelech is, and what happened that David was doing something, he did something else, and then he was driven out. And here's what I discovered. It's talking about the incident, the story back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, that tells the story of when David was in the Philistine city of Gath. It was in the Philistine city of Gath, and the king there is a man named Achish. And we read Achish and we say, but most commentators believe, most think that this is the Abimelech or the Ahimelech that is mentioned in Psalm 34. And what was David doing in the Philistine city of Gath? He was seeking political refuge. He was on the run from his king, King Saul. And he found himself in a particularly dangerous situation, though, because The king of Gath's officials were worried because they knew David's reputation. They knew about his military prowess. And they were probably concerned that David might be planning an attack on their city. And eventually what happened was David was eventually able to escape, eventually asked to leave and flee the city by pretending to be insane and thus being sent away. And here, the connection between the historical situation is that David, as the psalmist, is reflecting on the time when he was in trouble, and the time when he was in this situation. He calls on God. He cries out to God. Let the humble hear and be glad. God hears his prayer, answers his prayer, delivers him from all his fears and all his troubles so the opening verses of the psalm all have their focus completely on God. I will bless the Lord. I will magnify the Lord. Let us exalt the Lord. And this gratitude produces humility, which begs us to ask the question, what exactly is humility, and how do you know it when you see it? You know, it's not exactly a scientific thing that you can, you know, I've got my humility meter, let me go out and measure, oh, you're a 5.2, no, you're a 7.0, Oh, you're more humble. That's not how humility works. It's not like something you can scientifically measure. How do you know when you have encountered a humble person? Again, I think nobody puts it like C.S. Lewis. Listen to how he says, he says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a very self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Do you hear what he's saying? Let that sink in. Genuine humility is self-forgetfulness, unself-consciousness, not even being aware of yourself, and gratitude. If St. Augustine said that sin, by definition, is being curved in on yourself, the gospel And grace leading to gratitude will lead to humility because it will lead you to look outside of yourself. See, it is only if one's life is oriented towards God that you can cultivate gratitude and that kind of humility. When you're not thinking on the one hand you're a great person, nor are you thinking, oh, woe is me, I'm just worthless and focusing totally on your depravity. You're not thinking of how great you are, nor of how depraved you are. You are thinking about the wonder and the grace of God. You are focused and obsessed with him. Another writer, his name's Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, put it this way in his book on discipleship. He's talking about holiness. And he says, Becoming holy is being so taken over by the extraordinariness of God that that is what you are really interested in. And that is what radiates from you to reflect on other people. He says, there's the catch. If you want to be holy, stop thinking about it. If you want to be holy, look at God. If you want to be holy, enjoy God's world. Enter into it as much as you can in love and in service. Isn't this David's testimony? Let the humble hear and be glad. I will bless the Lord at all times. Come magnify him with me. Exalt the Lord together. What does he say? What's his own testimony in verse 4? I sought the Lord and he answered me. He is a God who answers prayer. He is a God who's interested in the details of my life. I called out and he delivered me from all my fears. He delivered me from all my fears so that I don't even have fear of anything else anymore. And then check out this promise. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. If you want to be holy, stop trying to be holy and focus on God. If you want to be holy, make him your focus. Here's his own testimony as to why he is so grateful. God is the ultimate source of his rescue. Let me press this just a little bit further before we move on to our next point. See, if all God has done for you is to help you. See, I'm afraid sometimes that we, that's what we do. We, we kind of gloss over the scriptures. We read scriptures like Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, we believe that, but think about there's, there's kind of a way to minimalize that a little bit. For all have sinned, yeah, I'll admit I'm a sinner, I'm flawed. And I've fallen short. Well, that can kind of mean I try really hard. I do the best I can. You know, I'm not a great person, but am I so bad? I just fall short of the glory of God. and We kind of minimalize it. And you know what else happens when we do that? We lose the power of God. There's not much gratitude. There's not much of the extraordinariness of God. Worship becomes ordinary rather than an experience with the extraordinary. But what if we say like Isaiah, woe is me? pronounce a curse on ourselves. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen, my eyes have encountered, I've been confronted with the King, the Lord Almighty. And then you're at the bottom. You're not flawed, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not middle class in spirit, you're poor in spirit, where you're bereft and you're bankrupt and you have no... There's a reason David is calling himself this poor man. A poor man has no resources to help himself. He has nothing. And then God in his love and God in his grace and God in his mercy takes the initiative and he sends the seraph to touch his lips with the tongues from the altar and he says, See, your sin is removed. Your guilt is atoned for. Then and only then where you don't need just a little help, but you need the grace of God, and the grace of God can become transformative and can help you to cultivate gratitude that leads to a forgetting of ourselves, an unself-consciousness that makes God extraordinary to us. We become obsessed with God and maybe a little bit more interested in others than we are in ourselves. And isn't that kind of the great commandment? The whole love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you're caught up with the wonder of God, and His grace is truly the DNA of your soul, can His grace become extraordinary? Gratitude leads to humility. But that's not enough. See, I don't know about you, but I can't work humility up in myself. I don't wake up in the morning and by willpower say, okay, God, you're extraordinary, let's go. I'm going to focus on you today. It doesn't really work that way for me. Does it for you? We need something else. We need the gospel to produce the fear of the Lord. See, look at gratitude and the fear of the Lord. In verse 8, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see. He's moving us now to an experiential culinary image. There's the goodness of the Lord. Don't just know about it. Taste it. See it. Encounter it, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, and then he says, "O oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Look at the creation, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So come, O oh, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Notice here the emphasis on the fear of the Lord, and one of the things we have to be careful of in our interpretation here. Because this is not a prosperity gospel teaching here. When he sits there and he says, for those who fear the Lord, you his saints, have no lack, let's be careful here. This is not saying, oh, fear the Lord, kind of magic bullet, and all of a sudden everything goes right in your life. The scriptures never teach that. But what God is always interested out of his interest in love in us, his love for us, he's interested in communion with us. And what this is teaching is the reality that we live and we move and we have our being in a Trinitarian God, God the Father through the Mediator, Jesus Christ, in the power and agency of the Holy Spirit. Where have no lack does not mean that our circumstances will always go perfect. Have no lack means that if we are under the grace and favor of God, if we have a relationship with him, that his communion satisfies, it's what we were built for. That's why, for instance, Psalm 34, verse 8, when it says, "Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, is behind what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, when it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See here, Peter's hearers have already tasted that the Lord is good. And they've tasted that the Lord is good through Jesus. They've tasted the ultimate goodness of the Lord through the fullness of salvation. So how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? It's interesting in another Psalm, Psalm 130, kind of gives us a clue. Psalm 130, the psalmist declares, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about that. If you, O Lord, should mark, should count the number of, you know, can you picture that? One, two, three, what what do you give up when you get to what, infinity? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, which of us could stand? Can you see why if you're trying to be holy by focusing on holiness, it's not going to work? But then he says, but with you, there is forgiveness and notice the language here. It's a reality. It is not a pipe dream. With you, it's a reality that as far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your sins from you. It is a reality that with you, the sins, your sins can be thrown into the depths of the ocean, which I love how Paul Miller says, there can be a sign that's put up on the shore says, no fishing allowed. But with you, I will not remember your sins anymore. With you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And the psalm doesn't stop there. It says, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In other words, to cultivate gratitude and the fear of the Lord will not come through working on humility, will not come through working on fear of the Lord, will not come by trying to earn those things, will only come through the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will only come through knowing and understanding and cultivating the gospel in your life. Which means the chief application as always, is you need to know the gospel better. And if you look with me, look it down at this, almost appears very cryptic, verse 7. That says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. There's that fear of the Lord again, and delivers him. Well, who or what is this angel of the Lord that the psalmist is saying he encounters and somehow encamps, builds kind of a garrison around him. Not just in front of him, not just behind him, but he's surrounding him and delivers people. Well, the angel of the Lord can be described in the scripture in a couple different ways. One of the ways is it can be a spiritual agent, kind of a messenger sent. But another way is it could stand for the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord oftentimes is a pre-incarnate Christ. And there are several different places in the Old Testament that reveal a pre-incarnate Christ, drawing near, revealing himself to deliver his people. One of the ones from a story from Israel's history is about another dangerous encounter and another encounter with a pre-incarnate Christ. And it comes out of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is about to lead, you know, Joshua is the successor to Moses, is by Jericho, and he's about to lead the people of God into Jericho and into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 5, we read, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Don't you love that? Are you on my team or on the other team? And the guy says, neither. No. But he goes on and he says, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua immediately fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to a servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Commentators and scholars again tell us and teach us here, that Joshua is meeting a pre-incarnate Jesus. Joshua is having an encounter with the mediator. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's Joshua saying, are you for us or are you against us? We're about to go into battle. I need to know I have an agenda here. I have something on my mind. I need to know who's going to fight for us, who's going to be with us. And the commander of the army of the Lord simply says no. It's not about that I am the commander of the Lord's army. And notice that he has a drawn sword, not a sheathed sword. The sword's not in his belt. The sword is drawn, ready for battle. And Joshua goes up to meet him. And commentators ask the question, why didn't that sword come down on Joshua? The sword is drawn, the, arm, the commander of the army of the Lord is prepared for battle. Joshua prepared, and the sword drawn for battle doesn't come down on Jesus. Commentators remind us that if you go back to the book of Genesis, when the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, it says that the Lord banished them from the garden, Genesis 3, verse 24, that after he drove them out, he placed on the east side of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, the sword was there to say, keep out. And why was it there to say, keep out? Because the wages of sin is death. And anybody who would try to get into the garden, to get to the tree of life, coming, see, there's no such thing as just as I am. Because the unholy cannot dwell with the holy. Anybody who tries to get into the presence of, of the holy, anybody who tries to get back into the bliss, will have to face the sword. The sword is not an option. The sword is a necessity. Sinful people cannot relate to a holy God. And so why didn't that sword come down on Joshua? And how is it that the angel of the Lord encamps, this pre-incarnate Jesus, encamps around those who fear, fear him to deliver us? Not to help us, to rescue, to save, to deliver. The gospel is about deliverance. Well, right before Joshua celebrated, right before Jericho, when Joshua was about to lead the people in, what did they do immediately before they celebrated the Passover? And why did they celebrate the Passover? What was the Passover all all about? It was all about the Lamb of God going under the sword on behalf of God's chosen people. The blood of the lamb goes on the doorpost, sing- signaling to the angel of death, Pass over when it sees the blood. They take shelter under the blood of the lamb. Verse 22 of our psalm in, in Psalm 34 says, none of those who look to him for refuge, for shelter. What does refuge mean? It means shelter. It means hiding. Who comes under The blood of the Lamb will be condemned. See, the commander of the army of the Lord with a drawn sword, the angel of the Lord encamping. What does it mean to encamp? It means he's the divine warrior. He's the one who fights our battles. We have a battle, our ultimate battle being with sin, with shame, with fear, and with death. And what does the gospel say? The sword falls on Jesus instead of falling on us. See, when Jesus will come, he will come not in strength, but he will come in weakness. He will come not in power, he will come in weakness. And he'll take the sword himself so that the sword can now be for us and not against us. Do you see the angel of the Lord encamping around you to deliver you? Or is God somebody you're still striving to try to get his approval? Do you see the angel of the Lord being your divine warrior who fights for you? With you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. The only thing that will cultivate the fear of the Lord is the gospel. Do you see him taking the sword for you? Substituting himself for you. The angel of the Lord encamping around you so that you can give yourself to him and surrendering to him. Taking your refuge in him. Those who take their refuge in him will not be condemned. What a tremendous promise. Their faces will be radiant and never be ashamed because the sword fell on Jesus instead of falling on us. Do you take your refuge in him? Let's pray. Lord, I do ask and I do pray that you would teach us, that you would help us, to cultivate communion through gratitude, through humility, through the fear of the Lord in you. We surrender to you. You are our refuge. You fight our battles for us, and you fight our greatest battle for us. Lord, We help us to give ourselves to you more and more through Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's continue to go before the Lord in a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? The scriptures declare that when the time had fully come, Father, you sent forth your son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. That you also sent the spirit of your son, the spirit leading us to cry out, "Abba, Father." We respond to hearing about your grace by crying out, "Abba, Father." Crying out "Abba, Father" on behalf of ourselves, Asking, Father, that you would take care of those who are sick, take care of the afflicted, comfort those who are mourning, those who are facing difficult decisions, those who are hurting, those, Father, who might be in distress or confused. As a family of God, may we not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but may we weep with those who weep. We cry out, Abba, Father, on their behalf. Lord, we cry out, Abba, Father, on behalf of our children who are going back to school in the morning. And Lord, what we want to ask is that you would equip them to be salt and light in the world. That as they go into their schools, that they would remember whose they are. That they would remember that they belong to you, Lord Jesus. That they would go with that confidence in you, and they would go filled with your grace. Lord, we ask that you would that we would cry out, Abba, Father, on behalf of the ministries of the church. So we pray, Lord, for our children's ministry. We thank you for Sherry. We ask you, Father, that you would give the session great wisdom as we seek a new director of children's ministries, that you would raise up the person of your choosing. We pray for our elders and deacons. We pray for our staff. We lift up Shane and Al as they lead our youth. We lift up Jamie as she leads our women. We pray that you fill us. The scriptures teach us be filled with the Holy Spirit. That the fruit that comes to overflowing with that would be love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We continue to pray. We call out Abba Father on behalf of our world. I don't know about anybody else but I look upon the events of this weekend and I'm horrified. Lord, I pray that Isaiah prophesied about you, Jesus, and said to us a child is born, and this child will be given the name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, and how the world needs a Prince of Peace, and oh, how we pray and ask Abba Father that the church, the community of love, the community of the Prince of Peace would be just that, the Prince of Peace. That we would, see, as the psalm taught us, seek peace and pursue it. Seek wholeness and shalom. That we would stand against evil. We would hate evil. We would speak against evil. And we would stand against evil. Lord, I pray for the church to be the church. And I pray that we would be a hope for our community here. That we would be a reconciled and reconciling community to the praise and glory of our Father. Lord, we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for the fullness of the gospel and the implications of the gospel, that we would live out of it and walk in it. And so, Lord, we come before you, beseeching you, Abba, Father, pour out your spirit and renew us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.